Well, welcome to the Montana DSA podcast series. My name is Frank Kremkowski. I'm a member of the Helena Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, we've been doing a series of podcasts during this Montana 2023 legislative session. And our guest today is Danny Tenenbaum, who's a former legislator from Missoula. And he is our 12th uh, uh, guest in, in the series. The series was uh, initiated by the Democratic Socialists of Montana, uh, and which set up a legislative action committee last fall. And the primary focus of our series has been affordable housing, abortion rights and reproductive justice, and labor rights and uh, workers' rights issues. Um, Montana DSA is uh, part of a organization that be, was begun in 1982 when the Democratic Socialists of America was founded uh, as a uh, merger of two democratic socialist organizations, the New American Movement and the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee. Marshall Mayer and Bonnie Lambert and I, uh, all from Helena now, were part of the 1982 Democratic Socialists of America founding convention back in, in Detroit. But we have roots back in, in the socialist organization of Eugene Debs, who ran for the, as socialist, who ran for the presidency back in the early part of the 20th century, in 1900, 1904, 1908, 1912, 1920. Some of those times, as I recall from my history, uh, while he was uh, in prison for his activities. But what we're doing is to focus in on the Montana legislature and its issues. And as I said, we're really uh, honored to have a former legislator and a current uh, uh, resident of Missoula, Danny Tenen Tenenbaum, as, as our representative today, our guest in this podcast. Danny was a representative from the Missoula area in the 2021 legislature. He moved out here, as I understand, from uh, New York in a previous life. As I say sometimes when I you know, talk about where I've been, originally from South Bend, Indiana. Um, moved out here in 72. So I've been here for a long time and lived here more. But Danny moved out here and with his wife and children now live in Missoula. He has worked as a public defender as well as being a legislature. And now he's a member of the Court of Appeals for the Salish Kootenai uh, Confederated Tribes. He has been following the Montana 2023 legislature, just as he did, uh, not just as he did when he was in 2021, because um, if you're not in the legislature, you can't possibly uh, be keeping up on all the thousands of bills and things that you need to do. But I want to welcome Danny and, and just say uh, we're happy to have you here with us. The Montana legislature, uh, although you're not in it, is something you have been following, I know, on, on especially on affordable housing issues and Indian uh, children's issues. So I'd like to just uh, ask you, um, what's your perspective on what's what we should be watching in the Montana 2023 legislature in the second half and what you've been watching is, is that either concerns you or gives you a, a sense of hope for economic and social justice. Sure. Well, first off, thank you for having me on this podcast, Frank, and uh, thank you for the introduction and thank you for all your work that you've done over the years, um, really organizing progressive people here in Montana. I think it's really important and um, there's a lot of us who sort of stand on the shoulders of the work that you've done uh, over the years. Thank, um, you. Thank you, Danny. 
in terms of the what I'm paying attention to now, I, I I've been focusing on issues related to housing and issues related to the the child welfare system here in Montana. Those are things that I uh, worked on during the interim. So after the last session ended, there was an opportunity to get involved in those issues, um, help write policy, help negotiate with Republicans and other Democrats, just everyone across uh, the political spectrum to see if we can come up with solutions to uh, problems that exist in those areas. So I've been focusing on those, not because I don't care about the other issues, but just because I think there's there's value in, in some specialization and, um, and just paying attention to the minutia of uh, all these bills that are coming through the pipeline. Um, but in terms of what to pay attention to uh, during the second half of this session, I personally am gonna be paying attention to a lot of the housing bills that, um, that are still active and there's probably around 10, I think, that are still alive, uh, that still have a chance of passing and that are worth paying attention to either to help them along um, and be in contact with legislators to uh, help educate them about issues. Um, or, you know, there's bills, still obviously bad bills out there that need to be killed um, in order to help uh, protect Montana renters and um, help improve the, the housing crisis, uh, help reverse the housing crisis that exists in Montana right now. Um, I'm watching with much more fear a lot of the bills related to the judiciary. There's clearly a concerted effort to, um, to attack the independent judiciary that exists in Montana. Um, you know, when you have this Republican dominated body that's passing a lot of bills that are getting struck down in courts because of what I would consider to be obvious uh, issues with constitutionality. Um, it builds up anger on their side and it builds up frustration. And so that's why we're seeing um, just a stream of bills that are uh, designed to weaken the independence of the judiciary and really put the judiciary on the defensive. There, there's this perception that they are a liberal judiciary. And I can say as someone who's practiced in Montana courts for, for quite a while, um, that's not the case. It's an independent judiciary. Uh, I've lost frequently in front of Montana courts. Um, and, and yet I still will defend their ability to, to make decisions on cases without um, political interference. And I, I see these attempts to weaken their independence as one of these existential threats uh, that it's really important that um, grassroots activists and everyone on the ground really gets involved in to put pressure on the legislature to, to kill these bad bills and to really send this statement to the legislature that we consider the separation of powers to be really important. And these branches of government, the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judicial branch, it's really important that they are co-equal um, and not elevating the legislature above the judiciary or the judiciary above the legislator. legislature. They're meant to be co-equal. Um, and that's really just important for maintaining that uh, those checks and balances that we have in place. So that's generally where I'm at right now with uh, 
with the legislature and trying to stay on top of things. Well, and today, of course, in, in Helena, there will be a uh, rally at the Capitol in the rotunda uh, to uh, have um, Supreme Court, former Supreme Court Justice Jim Nelson and several others uh, will be representing uh, the issues, uh, some of the issues that you've just talked about. But there are lots of challenges, uh, bills put forth to uh, uh, decimate uh, portions of the Montana Constitution, which is seen as a, one of the most progressive, if not the most progressive constitution in the United States, except for times where we've had some very good things in it that have been taken out by uh, um, referenda that, that were uh, happening over the years. Um, so uh, I'm sure I'll be finding out more about uh, from people who attend that rally about some of the things that they're also thinking about. Um, in terms of the, the housing crisis, uh, I just want to mention the term, use the term crisis, but I talked with the housing navigator for a, uh, an agency here in Helena, who said, Frank, you've got to know that what we do not have is a housing crisis. We have a housing emergency here in Helena. Uh, we have hundreds of people on waiting lists for non-existent um, apartments that could be possibly subsidized. Uh, we have uh, hundreds of people moving into the area, but only you know a portion of the houses that are being built uh, could could even handle that influx. But we have people who are uh, on the streets. We have homeless people. We have people who are uh, pretty bit desperate for housing. And so uh, my friend uh, who's a housing navigator for one of the agencies that primarily helps uh, low-income people who are in desperate straits says it's a, it's a it's not a crisis. It's an emergency. And uh, Elizabeth Marum from Bozeman, who you may know, um, uh, talked a little bit about that Governor's Advisory Council that, on Housing that you're a part of in, in her conversation with us a couple of weeks ago. Um, and you had mentioned that you were working, trying to work with Republicans on that group. And, and uh, I'm just wondering if, if some of the issues that came out in, that, in the Governor's um, Housing Task Force or Advisory Council's report are coming to fruition uh, in some way in this legislature, or will it take much more than this legislature to, to do some of the things that uh, your group is recommending? Yeah, uh, so on the housing task force, the governor's housing task force, there was, I think, really good synergy among the participants from across the political spectrum. I consider myself to be quite far to the left. Um, uh, but there's also people on the task force who are, you know, Republicans who are not, you know, solutions caucus Republicans, but people who are um, further to the right. And we really examined what was going on uh, within the state, talking with local officials, talking with people on the ground, uh, planners, housing advocates, um, and then also looking to see what's going on across the country because um, the housing crisis, the housing emergency that exists in Montana, it's it's happening in other places as well, other places where they're seeing um, a lot of demand uh, for, for housing, a lot of um, influx of people from other states uh, and also states where there just hasn't been a whole lot of, um, especially multifamily housing construction in the recent decades, they're seeing the same sort of emergencies. Um, so doing that, 
me meeting with that task force, we came up with a lot of proposals to increase the housing supply and look at what are the obstacles that exist at the state and local levels um, that are preventing more housing from coming online. Because when you when you have a undersupply of housing, when there's not enough homes on the ground to meet demand, then you see inevitably the vacancy rate drop in these communities to less than 5%, in some cases less than 3%, and for briefly less than 1%. And, and I, I think the Flathead, Bozeman, and Missoula at certain points during the pandemic. And when you see that, that's when you see RVs and cars line up in on the outskirts of town. Uh, that's when you see uh, it just exorbitant rent hikes um, and predatory uh, behavior uh, with application fees and illusory listings where you know property management companies or, or landlords will post these uh, availabilities and collect application fees from people who are desperate, desperate to sign a lease on an apartment. But in reality, there's no apartment available and they're just using it to harvest application fees. This sort of behavior is common and inevitable almost when there's low supply. And we, through our conversations with people across the political spectrum, we saw that there was momentum to see what we can do to increase the supply because it would relieve a lot of these issues or it, it could alleviate a lot of these issues over time once the supply builds up. So what we zoomed in on, what we uh, focused on was exclusionary zoning. And that's something that we, we saw that across the country, there are cities where there's high demand for housing. There's a lot of people who wanna live there, um, but the zoning laws and the permitting laws in these communities really um, create exclusionary neighborhoods where the only things that can be built are basically single family homes and any form of multifamily housing that is more affordable than a single family home that's usually prohibited or extremely difficult to build. Um, these laws, these rules, they sort of came into place in the 70s or 80s for the most part in Montana. And that's really when we started to see the, the supply of housing plateau. Um, and over time that really has resulted in increased rents and just a really bad market for anyone who's needing to find a place to live. Um, I consider it to be modern day segregation, uh, these, these rules that set aside specific neighborhoods as, you know, we're not going to build multifamily housing in this neighborhood because we want to preserve the neighborhood character. Um, and that's really what we're, 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 what we were trying to fight against with the Affordable Housing Task Force. We, we also uh, touched on a bunch of other issues. Some of those have resulted in bills that are now being considered, but most of the bills that are still alive now are ones that attack exclusionary zoning and you know just provide Montanans with more housing options, which I think is really important. And I'm really excited that there's uh, bipartisan um, momentum on these issues. Uh, there's SB 323, which is a bill that would say, you know, wherever within municipalities, so within cities and urban areas, if there's a, a parcel where you can build a single family house, you also have to 
be able to build a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex, so small scale multifamily housing. Um, there's also SB 245, which is a bill that will uh, ensure that um, housing can also be built in commercial areas, so encourages mixed use development. Um, I think SB 379 is a bill that will uh, allow for uh, backyard cottages and um, manufactured and modular housing in places uh, that currently have some ordinances that ban this type of housing. Again, to preserve neighborhood character is usually the reason given. And I'm trying to think there's a few more bills that are strictly uh, focused on supply. But uh, to me, these are great ideas. They're being um, co-sponsored by a mix of Democrats and Republicans. And they have a lot of momentum, like uh, the, the fourplex bill, I think, just recently passed the Senate on a 47 to 3 vote, um, which is really encouraging to see uh, people from all across the political spectrum understand that this is a problem uh, across Montana, but in specific cities. And the momentum to the push to take action on them, as opposed to studying them or 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 just leaving the status quo in place. So I'm really excited about that. There's a lot more changes I would like to make in the, the housing realm, um, a lot better policies that I'd like to see put in put in place that I think are going to take longer. But um, you know, any any wins that we can solidify, I think it's worth fighting for right now. Well, here in the Helen area, DSA members and, and lots of other members of the community have formed a, a group called uh, Moving the Needle, I mean, Moving the Dial uh, toward action on affordable housing for all. And so we've looked at a variety of, of uh, issues related to housing, including you know funding, uh, but also obstacles. Uh, we're trying to reach out to realtors. Uh, we're looking at properties that are uh, are vacant to see if we can uh, tap some of the uh, Helena ARPA funds on, or the housing affordability uh, fund here in Helena to address those kinds of things. But uh, we know our efforts in Helena are uh, just starting really in terms of addressing this crisis and emergency in Helena. Uh, what are some of the other things that you, uh, um, want to uh, maybe highlight as, as far as uh, bills in the legislature, such as Zoe Zephyr's bills or uh, Kim Abbott's bill, uh, which was just introduced by House Bill 574, which would uh, add $500 million to a housing uh, affordability trust fund. What are your thoughts on, on those things, either Zoe Zephyr's or, uh, or Kim Abbott's? Yeah, I I was amazed uh, by Zoe Zephyr's bills. So this is Representative Zoe Zephyr. Um, she recently won uh, a contested election for House District 100, which is a district here in Missoula. And she's a renter and she came, she's the first trans legislator in Montana history, which is really exciting. Um, she came into the legislature and immediately hit the ground running, making connections uh, with people from all across the political spectrum. And 
wanting, and I, I know she came in with a desire to move the needle um, for renters and provide some assistance for renters in Montana. And that's tough to do in our legislature, which is, you know, dominated by Republicans. They're, it's not traditionally a body that is going to pass legislation to make it um, easier for renters to stay in their places and to, to look out for their interests. And yet she drafted a bill that um, has made it out of the house now that will provide, I think, 60 days notice um, prior to a termination of a lease, I think, or an increase in rent. I, I'm not sure ex the exact details, but I know it's increases the notice requirements um, from 30 days to 60 days, which is incredibly important because if a change like that is if a landlord landlord wants to Im, uh, impose a change like that and the tenant you know can't can't make that work within their budget and so they're going to have to find a new place it's so important to give them time and notice so that they can find or try and find an alternative uh living arrangement um find a different place to live um and 30 days just isn't enough uh, in these markets to to make those changes. I mean, that's that's really putting a person in a bind um, with the housing markets that currently exist in places like Helena, Bozeman, Missoula, the Flathead. Um, so she drafted that bill. She got it through the House. It's going to go through the Senate um, in the coming weeks. Uh, and I hope it lands on the governor's desk. Uh, and I hope he signs it. There's also... Um, I think it's H, uh, SB 320, uh, which was drafted by Senator Ellie Boldman, and that will um, put in place some important reforms with respect to application fees for renters and to ensure that landlords can't um, continue with this practice that I described before with these sort of fake listings and collecting application fees from people who are really eager to to be under consideration for these places that don't actually exist and then they just keep the application fees her bill will um institute some reforms to ensure that like it just basically keeps landlords honest and i mean currently if you are looking for a rental in bozeman or missoula like you can expect to spend hundreds if not more than a thousand dollars on application fees for apartments um, that may or may not exist in reality before you might strike gold and actually secure sign a lease for a place. And that's on top of the money that renters or prospective renters have to set aside for security deposits and first month's rent and moving expenses. Um, I'm really glad that she wrote that bill to um, to help ease that process a little bit. And I think it's really important. And she she managed to pass it through the Senate so that in the coming weeks will be heard probably in the House Local Government Committee um, in the legislature. So it's important to reach out to uh, your legislator if they're on that committee, or even if they're not on that committee, or if you know any of the legislators on that House Local Government Committee and um, personal stories explaining why these uh, types of bills are important, it, it really can help move the needle and it can make it uh, much more difficult for, um, for example, the Landlords Association to kill these bills. Yes. Well, uh, a lot of people 
when they do find out about the dire straits that so many people who are looking for rentals and, and really can't afford what exists or can't find anything that exists, or they find themselves on you know the 700th uh, number on the waiting list for uh, Section 8 housing subsidy, people do then start to uh, say, what can we do? I, I know from personal experience and with friends of mine who uh, had all the problems that you you mentioned of you know having fees and this and that, but also uh, like, let's say just the example of a friend of mine who was uh, essentially homeless because he was living in a mold infested trailer and uh, needed to get out, but was sick as well as uh, you know in, in in trouble living in that place. But he uh, he needed help to simply go and apply for a Section 8 housing uh, subsidy. And when those of us who were his allies, you know, helped him in that process, we found out he needed glasses. So we took him to get, get glasses. We uh, also found out that, you know, if you're, as he told us, you know, I, I'd be glad to try to find houses, but I don't have a phone. My phone is broken. Uh, when we told the story to Mayor Wilmot Collins, he bought my friend a phone that day. But my friend said also, well, Frank, you know, I know that you have a car, but I don't have a car. So I can't go to look at these places that I'm thinking of possibly renting with my Section 8 uh, housing voucher. And so um, a good hearted pair of friends of mine said, well, we have a car. We'll give you this car. But and now that person is in decent housing uh, and is working, you know, uh, in his own way to help other people as he always has. He has a heart of gold himself, help especially veterans and others who are down and out. In the Helena area, there's a 2% vacancy rate, the last I knew. So it's it's practically impossible to, uh, to, to, to get uh, a place to live if you're uh, not able to pay the, uh, the current high rental rates. Um, I know you've mentioned also that uh, you were concerned about the, uh, the the plight of Indian children, and and there's an Indian child, there's a Montana Indian Child Welfare Act that is moving through the legislature. Wonder if you might uh, talk some about those issues and how uh, they are important to you as well as a a former legislator and as a person who uh, just cares about those issues. Sure, yeah, right before the uh, US Supreme Court now, I think they're gonna issue a decision in probably a month or two is uh, a case where some right-wing organizations are trying to declare the Indian, the Federal Indian Child Welfare Act unconstitutional um, and strike it down and that's deeply concerning. The, the Indian Child Welfare Act uh, was uh, passed at the federal level, I think in the, I want to say the 70s, um, maybe maybe a little bit before then, but I think it was the 70s by a huge bipartisan um, majority of legislators there. And it's important because it what was happening prior to that was Indian children were basically being stolen from their families and placed with um, families outside of their community that were, and you, we saw 
basically the er the erasure of their culture, and it was an attempt to um, to raise Indian children, to take them from their families and raise them to be white and to forget about uh, their culture. It was what I consider to be ethnic cleansing. It's a form of ethnic cleansing. And the potential loss of the Indian Child Welfare Act would be catastrophic. And one response that we're seeing in states across the country, both red states and blue states, is to take the important elements of the Indian Child Welfare, the Federal Indian Child Welfare Act, and incorporate those protections into state law. And these protections are usually heightened due process protections for Indian children um, or children who, who are eligible to be enrolled in uh, federally recognized tribes. Uh, these due process protections ensure that there's heightened levels of scrutiny um, and to ensure that they have you know, a right to counsel and that the state must meet a higher evidentiary burden in order to remove those children from their families um, and to place them, and it, it encourages placement um, of those children with uh, family members who exist within the community or in the alternative, other foster families that exist within that tribe um, in order to maintain that cultural tie um, and to prevent the, what I really consider to be mass ethnic cleansing where you're just taking children from their Indian families and placing them with white families um, who are under no obligation to maintain those cultural ties. So the Montana Indian Child Welfare Act is a bill that um, was introduced by Representative Windy Boy and it's it passed the House and so it's going to be considered in the Senate. I, I testified in support of it, so did a bunch of other people. Um, and it's just really important to have those protections in place in Montana law in case that uh, the Indian Child Welfare, Welfare Act, the federal version is struck down at, by the US Supreme Court. And that's entirely likely. We don't know, even you could ask like Indian law experts and I'm in touch with a lot of them and there's no one really knows if it's gonna pass because they think they've got four solid votes but they're not sure about getting that fifth in order to, to turn away this attempt to declare the Federal Indian Child Welfare Act unconstitutional. That's a, a really important bill that I'm gonna I'm gonna be testifying in support of it at the Senate level as well, and and trying to make sure that it passes. Uh, there's also a bunch of other bills that uh, are attempting to reform parts of Montana's child welfare system. Uh, some of them, most of them, are, are apply to all children within the system, not just Indian children. And I, I think these are also important because. Broadly speaking, Montana is an outlier when it comes to uh, our child welfare system. We currently um, use the tool of separation, so removing children from their families at three times the national rate. Um, and that's really concerning. We're, we're, I think, number two in the nation uh, for child removals after West Virginia. And this is another issue where there was a lot of bipartisan focus during the interim. How can we reverse this? How can we improve our system so that we can keep families together when possible and end this practice of unnecessarily separating families? Um, there's a lot of exciting 
uh, bills that are being considered in both chambers right now. Some of them have passed uh, quite easily. And um, I, I really truly believe that our child welfare system is gonna look a lot different when these bills start to go into effect uh, in July, 2023. And I, I'm hopeful that we can reduce our removal rate so that we go back to, you know, uh, a rate that I think reflects only removals that are necessary and um, that we're keeping families together when, if at all possible. That's uh, uh, very important to me personally as well. Um, my friend Margaret Stewart, uh, with whom I co-taught some classes when we were both at Carroll College back in the 70s, was head of the Child Protective Services system in Montana and extremely knowledgeable. And, and she mentioned that 95% uh, of the children who actually went into foster care did not need to be placed into foster care. But she said, what was the reason? There were very few funds that were available for family-based family preservation services. And it's a... Uh, it's a, a challenge to uh, have to continue to, you know, see that. I don't know, Danny, if you've seen that documentary called Lost Sparrows. It was it was about a four Northern Cheyenne children who were removed from their parents in Montana, from the Northern Cheyenne location, and they were moved out to uh, the East Coast. Two of them tried to get back to Montana and were run over by a train, but it's a moving documentary about um, what happens, what can happen in, in the worst scenario, people uh, being removed, children being removed from their families. And, and then there's also the, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Montana being an outlier, but about 7% of the children in Montana are Native American. But uh, more than 25% of the children in foster care are Native Americans. So there's a real challenge. Um, Danny, I have a question for you about your role in the Court of Appeals in the uh, Salish Kootenai uh, Confederated Tribes. What, what is your role there and how does that relate to the issues that we've been talking about? Sure. I um, So my first job out of law school was working as a public defender for the Salish Kootenai tribes. Whew, sorry, I just walked up the stairs. Uh, I got kicked out of my study room at the library here in Missoula. Um, so I uh, that was my first job. And then from there, I uh, transitioned to working for the state system as a, an appellate public defender practicing in front of the Montana Supreme Court. And uh, after doing that for about six years, uh, there was an opening on the uh, Court of Appeals for the Salish Kootenai tribes back in the, the tribal system where I used to practice. And uh, so I applied and was selected to serve on that, which is just a, probably the biggest honor of my life, to be honest. Um, I really enjoy practicing in that system. And uh, it's really where I cut my teeth as a public defender. And 
they, we operate with a more holistic model in our criminal, in the criminal defense system, and sorry, not the, in the criminal justice system within the, uh, the Flathead Reservation. And so um, I'm just very excited to be a part of uh, a system that operates a little bit differently than um, most states do. And I think it produces better outcomes and it, in, it increases community trust in the system. And um, yeah, so I'm just happy to, to still play a, a small role and uh, to be in touch with, um, with the folks who I, I worked with uh, you know, in that job while straight out of law school. I want to mention one more part of my history that's important um, to, to this issue is that I dealt with a uh, case when I was a fair hearings officer at the Department of Family Services, which then was subsumed into the Department of Public Health and Human Services. But there was a case where we had a, a rule that said if a person had, had uh, children in foster care, those children could not also be in daycare. Now it sounds like, you know, you could say there are too many services, except that in this one very important case, there was a case of a Native American grandmother whose grandchildren were in her care in foster care because their mother, who was also Native American, was having uh, drug abuse issues. And so, Someone in the Department of Family Services, a local social work supervisor said, you can't have those kids in, in daycare, you know, kick them out of daycare. Uh, and then the grandmother said, uh, look, if that happens, uh, I won't be able to work. I need work for my own sobriety. And so it was an interesting case. And I dealt with five different lawyers, including a lawyer representing the Confederated Salish Kootenai tribes who said, uh, well, there's something wrong here because the Indian, well, this is a situation where these children um, need daycare to stay with their grandmother and their grandmother is their tie to the, their family and to the Native American community. And so after hearing five different lawyers and after having dealt with five different uh, legal briefs, I wrote a 55 page uh, attempt to answer everyone and said, uh, we need to understand the Indian Child Welfare Act applies in this case. And it, it is that these children should have preference to be kept in their Native American community. Even if the daycare rule in Montana said, uh, you can't have children in foster care and also in daycare. And so um, as a result of that decision of mine, uh, the lawyer for the department challenged my decision and then the director of the department the next day said rewrite the damn rule get rid of this rule there is a, an important exception and as it turns out there's a legal maxim apparently from the middle ages that i cited called exceptio probat ad regulam the exception proves the rule which doesn't make a lot of sense in english but there's always an exception to rules uh, because legislatures cannot anticipate all circumstances. And in this case, uh, yeah, there was a good rule, uh, maybe, except that this was the kid's only chance to be Native American in their own community uh, by staying with their grandmother. 
And I don't know the final outcome of that case, which was many years ago, but this Indian Child Welfare Act and the the understanding of the importance of, of recognizing what we've done so wrongly to Native American communities in our in our state as well as across the country from day one when uh, settlers the colonial settlers moved in and started uh, killing Native Americans in in the United States before it was the United States. So it's a topic dear to my heart, and I'm glad that you're in involved in that and in, in, in the midst of that. Citizens sometimes, if I could just turn to another topic and see what your thoughts are on this. Citizens, uh, when they finally you know, get wind of things happening in the legislature, find out that it's, it's a, quite a uh, time burden to try to figure out what's happening in the legislature. And when they see some of the craziest bills that are being put forth, like to um, say that the second amendment to the Montana Constitution doesn't apply to uh, abortion issues as it clearly did according to the 1999 decision uh, before the Montana Supreme Court. Uh, people sometimes get discouraged and say, uh, you know, there's really nothing that a citizen can do. Um, and then they find a way to kind of give up and go away. You're one of those people who were in the legislature uh, and have continued to follow the legislature. What do you say to your fellow citizens who um, haven't had this experience that you've had of being there firsthand and of, uh, of supporting progressive legislators in the Missoula area who are really tired of uh, the legislature and just can't handle the stress of, of time following bills or of um, seeing that there's so many crazy things happening in a Montana Republican dominated legislature. What do you say to those people who are kind of um, going back to sitting on the sidelines because they uh, are so discouraged? Yeah, I would say it grassroots pressure does work. I've seen it work firsthand when you as a legislator see a stream of people either online or testifying in person show up in opposition to a bad bill and that bill maybe only has one proponent and they're from some out-of-state think tank or uh, front organization for uh, the Koch brothers or, or something like that. Um, it really does make a difference. Um, obviously, the bigger the numbers that uh, are able to organize around an issue, the better. Um, but uh, all I can say is that it does matter. And um, and in terms of how to most effectively um, lobby your legislators as a as a citizen, as an everyday citizen. Um, one thing that you can do is just prior to the session um, or even during the session, just arrange for uh, to meet your legislator, whether it's your senator or your representative for coffee. Um, and most people I talked to uh, and worked with there will will gladly take up that uh, offer. And and that way you can sort of get put a name to the face and understand who uh, is representing you as opposed to just 
sending shooting off an email mid like in the middle of the session when there's a bunch of terrible bills being proposed and just praying for some sort of response i, I mean as a as a legislator with particularly controversial bills we would just get stacks of papers on a daily basis from people who are outraged about um controversial bills like right to work um or uh, a lot of this anti-trans legislation um things related to, to conservation funding. And it's difficult um, with our limited time to sit down and write a response to each one of those. But um, just the weight of that input can help ensure that uh, one, that democratic or that legislators don't stray um, and don't, don't feel tempted to vote for a bad bill. Um, and then when these, when this onslaught of citizen input comes to, for example, some moderate Republicans, it can make it very difficult for them to, to vote for some of these, you know, right wing bills that are attacking trans Montanans, for example. Um, so the pressure does matter, and citizen involvement absolutely matters. Um, so yeah, that that's the best advice I can give. Um, otherwise, like get involved in primaries. You know, this session is going to end in probably at the end of April um, around and there'll be another election cycle and there's likely some open seats in your community. And what you can do is, you know, you don't have to run yourself. It can be um, a lot of people just don't have the interest or the availability to run themselves. But, um, you know, look at how your legislator is voting. And uh, if they're not voting the right way, um, in your opinion, um, maybe it's time to, to work with people to run an alternative to, to primary that person. Um, and, and just basically pay attention to these elections and, and, and ensure that there's good candidates running at the state level, um, at the local level. These local elections really do matter. That's, I think, really important uh, because I think for the most part, you could say uh, citizens in Montana and elsewhere are non-political in the sense that they are not actively involved in the kinds of things you've just suggested, either running for office or of supporting a candidate or of uh, writing a letter uh, in support of a candidate or, or meeting with the candidate for the city council or, or for the legislature. And uh, it takes effort and time to do that. Um, a lot of people uh, say they're sick and tired of both the Democrats and the Republicans. And as members of DSA, uh, we can understand that idea because uh, Democrats have uh, done their share of uh, dastardly deeds over the years. And in the Montana situation, we have, you know, just a minority of Democrats in the legislature. And so it's a tough, tough thing to uh, look just to the legislature as it now is composed without taking action to um, build up a more progressive uh, uh, legislature by opposing the by either running for office or, or or supporting someone who will be be more progressive stance, um, when 
those of us in Helena were uh, part of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Uh, we were successful in, in getting uh, Sanders to win the primary. Of course, he, he uh, didn't finally win the national primaries, but um, the idea that somehow uh, we should only uh, sigh and go away is, is not part of our tradition, either yours or ours. And so we would like to say that uh, those people who say, uh, to us, you know, give up are, are are really falling into the trap of saying exactly what those who now hold the power want us to say. Uh, you know, that there's nothing we can do. This legislature is going to be tough, but as you've pointed out, some possibly good things on affordable housing have, have been happening, and some of the bills that are, that were being are be, being proposed now are probably going to be declared unconstitutional. Um, but I'd like to just echo your thoughts that um, we're not giving up. We're working beyond the legislature to the further electoral processes and other processes besides you know, elections, um, like the referendum process, which is also being threatened in Montana. Uh, referenda in Montana have uh, brought forth some good things uh, and there's always a lot to do to keep active and keep going. So I want to say just if you have any final words to say uh, as we close this uh, DSA podcast uh, here on uh, March 15th. Yeah, I would just, first of all, thank you for this opportunity. Um, and thank you for all the work that you have done. But I, I would just really emphasize that Every legislator it doesn't matter um, if you are living in a if you're represented by someone who is very strong strongly progressive or if you're living in rural Montana and you're represented by someone who is part of this uh, so-called freedom caucus and every legislator in between they need to be held accountable um, and no legislator should be accepted from that. So I think it really is important, you know, if you're upset with the way your person, your representative or your senator voted on an issue, um, doesn't matter if they're from the same party, different party. I think it's on on us to to ensure that they they understand your um, your position and why what how they voted on an issue was wrong, and. The other reason that this grassroots activism and advocacy is so important is because you can help educate legislators on issues. Um, everyone coming into the legislature has a specialty, um, a focus on specific issues. There's a trapping guy from Northwest Montana. There's uh, an education focused legislator from, uh, from Missoula. There's someone who basically only cares about crossbows uh, from Billings, and they don't have um, a lot of exposure uh, or knowledge um, to issues outside of those realms. And they rely on sometimes other legislators to be educated on those issues. Sometimes it's lobbyists, but it can also be from their constituents and it should be. 
So I encourage people to reach out. And if there's an issue that you really deeply care about and you want to make sure your legislator, uh, your representatives, this is also true at the local level, so city council, county commissioners, to make sure that they understand that issue, that's a great thing to set up a, a coffee date um, for or, or just educate them over email or a phone call or something like that. That's really helpful. I came into the legislature not really knowing too much about the minutia of childcare re regulation um, in the laws surrounding that. And that's an issue where during the session, I reached out to people who I know who are experts on those issues. And some of those were my constituents. And that's how I learned. I talked to um, the director of my kid's preschool and sat down with her and really dove into the issues and what her concerns are. And um, that was really helpful. And uh, it's really helpful for all legislators, all elected officials to hear from their constituents in that way. So that's one just one other thing I'd like to add. Um, other than that, like I just want to give a shout out to everyone who is active during the legislative session right now, who's pressuring their legislator, who's writing in, who's calling in, who's showing up to testify, who's standing out there uh, in the the Capitol rotunda with a sign. Like it, it all matters, it all helps, and we hear you loud and clear. And um, even if it doesn't show up in some of the votes, even if bad bills continue to progress, um, this sort of pushback and this sort of activism is so important and uh, it really does make a difference. Um, so I, I would just thank people, <laughs> thank the listeners who are active and involved uh, in any way, it, it, it helps move the needle. And, you know, this is not a, a sprint, it's a marathon and, the, the work that we're doing now is supported by the work that people did 5, 10, 20 years ago, um, especially by the people who were there for the Constitutional Convention um, and who wrote our great Constitution. I'm reminded of that every day, especially today when there's this big rally happening at the Capitol. So, um, yeah, that's about it. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast, Frank. Well... Danny Tenenbaum, I want to thank you very much for being with us, sharing your experiences and, and insights. And I stress that it's not just your opinions, but insights. I, I think that you've um, seen a lot and have uh, continued work uh, to help make uh, Montana a more just place. We, members of the Democratic Socialists of America, uh, believe that the United States and Montana should be a genuine democracy in economics and politics and in every aspect of life and work. And we thank you for uh, being with us in that fight and uh, wish you well uh, as you continue your work. Thank you very much, Danny Tenenbaum. Thank you, Frank.